Ever wondered how we went from imagining space travel to landing on the moon? Or from dreaming about sentient machines to having Siri in your pocket? Join me as I explore crazy concepts and incredible ideas from science fiction and how scientists and inventors have turned them into reality. This is episode two, the one with the moon landing. Almost everyone has heard these iconic words at least once in their life, but if you're like me, you were taught in a simplified version of the events that led to the Apollo 11 lunar landing. The full story is a little more complex. This is the story of how the United States of America lost the space race. Let's rewind a bit and hit the books to see what our pre-spaceflight authors thought about space travel. Welcome to the 2nd century of the Common Era, also known as the 2nd century AD, and Lucian of Samosata has just written a novel, True History, about adventurers who head off in an Odysseus-style epic trek of fantasy. And what a trek! These hapless wanderers get swallowed by a whale and declare war against fish people living in the whale's stomach. They sail on a sea of milk and land on an island of cheese, and they even meet Pythagoras. It's comforting to know I'm not the only person who gets excited at the appearance of famous mathematicians. I fangirled over the appearance of Bertrand Russell in The Man Who Knew Infinity, which is a pretty excellent film about Srinivasa Ramanujan, one of the best mathematical minds of all time. Lucian's travellers also get caught up in a whirlwind, Wizard of Oz style, and are transported to the moon, where not only are they definitely not in Kansas anymore, but they find out that there's an all-out war being fought between the King of the Moon and the King of the Sun. The king of the inhabitants of the sun, Phaethon, said Endymion, king of the moon, has been at war with us for a long time now. Once upon a time, I gathered together the poorest people in my kingdom and undertook to plant a colony on the morning star, which was empty and uninhabited. Phaethon, out of jealousy, thwarted the colonisation, meeting us halfway at the head of his dragoons. At that time, we were beaten, for we were not a match for them in strength, and we retreated. Now, however, I desire to make war again and plant the colony. If you haven't been paying attention so far, that's, that's fine. Just remember this. Lucian, in the 2nd century CE, wrote about two empires fighting a war over colonising a distant star. Sound familiar? The next time we find an author writing about travel to the moon is Johannes Kepler. You probably remember Kepler from learning about his three laws of planetary motion in science class. If you need a refresher, the first law sets out that planets have elliptical orbits. The second says that planets travel fastest at the thinnest part of this ellipse, closest to the star they're orbiting. And the third says that if you take a solar system with multiple planets orbiting a star, the mathematical relationship between the time taken for a planet to make a complete circuit and the distance between that planet and the star at the centre of the solar system is the same for each planet in that system. He's also pretty famous for the Kepler conjecture, which looks at the most efficient way to pack spheres into a box and was only proven in 2017, over 400 years after Kepler first proposed it. Kepler's 1634 book Somnian uses Yoldi, I woke up and twas but a dream plot device to imagine life on the moon. He also describes lunar astronomy, for example, what eclipses look like from the moon and phases of the earth. 
and that the moon's divided into two hemispheres, one of which never sees Earth, and which today we call the dark side of the moon. Unfortunately, Kepler's protagonists don't actually travel to the moon, but in 1657 we turn up a surprising description of a one-man flight to the moon by Serrano de Bergerac in the comic history of the states and empires of the moon. For so soon as the flame had devoured one tier of squibs, which were ranked by six and six, by means of a train that reached every half dozen, another tier went off, and then another, so that the saltpeter taking fire put off the danger by increasing it. I felt without the least stirring my elevation continuing, and a dew machine, for I saw it fall down again towards the earth. This description is what we now would call a multi-stage rocket. And development of the multi-stage rocket was pretty critical to successfully exiting the Earth's atmosphere. What do I mean by that? Well, let's talk physics. When you launch rockets into space from Earth, you need fuel. Lots of fuel. It takes a lot of power to generate enough thrust to get a rocket away from Earth's gravity. The downside is that this fuel is heavy, and the more fuel you load onto a rocket, the heavier it gets. You also need more storage space to hold the fuel in kind of like having a bigger petrol tank in your car. So there's a delicate balancing act between having enough fuel to leave Earth, and hopefully return, and actually escaping the Earth's gravitational pull in the first place. Fuel is the heaviest thing a rocket carries. If you launch a rocket into space with a single large fuel tank, at some point most of that fuel tank will be empty, and you'll be carrying around useless weight. That unnecessary weight attached to your rocket is a burden. You have to burn fuel to lift it, and it's doing absolutely nothing to help you get into space anymore. If only we could get rid of this useless weight somehow. The solution to this is to make multiple fuel tanks. The first tank ignites, kicking off the rocket launch process. At some point, this tank runs out of fuel, so we unhook the now empty fuel tank, sending it falling back down to Earth, and ignite the second fuel tank. This second tank now has less mass to propel, so it's more efficient than if we hadn't ejected the empty tank. The Apollo 11 lunar landing used a three-stage rocket, but in 1657, we didn't even have the combustion engine yet. The most common modes of transport, apart from on foot, were by horseback or horse-drawn carriage. Steam-powered cars wouldn't be invented until 1720. Space travel was a long way off. Our next stop isn't too far though. We're going to head forward to literary luminary Jules Verne in 1866. Jules Verne was almost a lawyer, but luckily for us he decided to follow his hero Victor Hugo into the arts. One of his early writing jobs was in science communication. He was hired to write articles and fictional narratives that included educational material on geography, history, science and technology. Van was perfect for the job. His meticulous attention to detail and painstaking research combined with a love of writing great adventure stories. And Van's legacy to science fiction was his series of Voyages Extraordinaires or Extraordinary Journeys that mixed adventure fiction with science fact. He liked to use some pretty wild transport methods too. Hot air balloons in five weeks in a balloon, submarines in 20,000 leagues under the sea, and a spaceport in From the Earth to the Moon. Submarines weren't new, 
They'd been written about originally by Mary Cavendish as early as 1666 in her utopian satire, The Blazing World. Gas-powered hot air balloons were a dime a dozen. We are talking pre-Zeppelin era before the Hindenburg disaster here. But the moon gun was at first. Yep, you heard me correctly. French author Jules Verne fired his astronauts into space with a giant moon gun. Kaboom! As it would turn out, Jules Verne got some of the details right and some of the details wrong. Some of his inaccuracies were pretty unfortunate. The initial acceleration required from his gun would pretty much liquefy the poor astronauts on launch. Even today we have to put a lot of care into our rocket launches to make sure that astronauts can withstand the g-forces experienced, leading to such wonderful phrases as eyeballs in during space launch. He also thought space travellers would only be weightless at Lagrangian point between the Earth and the Moon, where the competing gravitational forces cancel each other out. We now know that's not true. As for things he got right, well, let's just say there may have been some Jules Verne fans amongst the people planning the US space missions. Apollo 1 was about the same size and shape of Verne's Columbiad, and the command module for the Apollo missions was called the Columbia. Verne shot his moon gun in Florida, the Apollo missions launched in Florida, and in both cases returning astronauts parachuted into the sea. Jules Verne was somewhat of a space visionary. Now, hot on the heels of Jules Verne came literary juggernaut H.G. Wells. His 1901 book, The First Men in the Moon, shows two men using anti-gravity material called Cavorite to fly to the moon. His protagonists discover a rapidly growing jungle, some alien life, including fat moon calves, which I like to imagine as the adipose from Doctor Who, but larger and less cute. You can see that Wells was far less fastidious about the scientific grounding for his writing from this story, I think. And if not, time travel, invisible men, and alien invasions in his later work should put your doubts at ease. There have been a lot of comparisons drawn between Van and Wells. While Van wrote with one foot firmly grounded in scientific principles, Wells wrote with his head in the clouds. Where Van took pains to ensure his stories stayed within the reach of scientific and engineering advances of the time, Wells pushed the boundaries to the fantastic. But both Van and Wells inspired generations of science fiction writers, including Ursula Le Guin, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, and Arthur C. Clarke. Literally every science fiction writer after Van and Wells was standing on the shoulders of giants. Van and Wells also inspired the people who would go on to make spaceflight possible. Cue the rockets. It would be pretty negligent of me to pretend we didn't have rockets when Van and Wells were writing. One of the earliest records we have on gunpowder-fueled rockets is from battles between the Chinese and the Mongols in 1232. Fireworks fueled by gunpowder, or saltpeter as early forms of gunpowder were called, had been used by the Chinese since at least 900 CE. I'll put up a post on my blog, Science is Golden, about the history of rockets with some pictures and reading links for you if you're interested. To save this from becoming a two-hour military history podcast, though, I'm going to focus on rockets for spaceflight. In 1903, two years after H.G. Wells released The First Men in the Moon, Russian Konstantin Tsiolkovsky published an equation in a Russian aviation machine. This little equation set out the mathematical relationship between rocket mass with and without propellant, the conversion of fuel to momentum, and the change in rocket velocity. 
In layperson's terms, it lets you calculate the speed power-up from burning rocket fuel once you know how efficient a particular rocket type is. This wasn't Tsiolkovsky's first foray into rocketry. He started exploring the science of spaceflight in 1878 and had written about spaceships requiring space propulsion as far back as 1883. He was also quite prolific at writing science fiction. His stories include things like discovering alien life in the asteroid belt, building a space station and exploring the solar system. Since his stories were written in Russian, though, they remained hidden for decades after he wrote them. Some were only translated in the 1960s. Lots of these stories in science turn out to have two people who independently discover really similar things. Our double whammy this week comes courtesy of French aviation scientist Esnot Peltier and his 1913 paper presenting, again, the rocket equation, but this time in French. He also proposed the use of nuclear energy to power an interplanetary vehicle. Esnot Peltier and his colleague Jean-Jacques Barré were funded by the French War Department to study ballistic missiles and different propulsion systems in 1930, but their study of rocket science ultimately failed to take off in France. Our next scientist, American Robert Goddard, has a page bookmarked in history as the inventor of the first liquid-fueled rocket. He took out two patents in 1914, one on the liquid fuel rocket and a second on a multi-stage rocket, and he even made a prototype bazooka in 1918. Between 1926 and 1941, Goddard's team launched 34 rockets. That's just over one every six months. In the meantime, back in the USSR, Tilkovsky was publishing work in 1929 on multi-stage rockets that would be critical to the USSR's missile and rocketry program in the 1930s. However, the Soviet rocket program stagnated in the later half of the 1930s, when Stalin's great purge to remove dissidents plucked scientists and engineers out of research laboratories and threw them into detention. This is where rocketry gets interesting. You could be forgiven for thinking the only nations far enough ahead in rocket research in 1969 to put people on the moon were the US and the former USSR. The truth is that the US and USSR only got to where they did by stealing a whole bunch of rocket scientists from Germany after World War II ended. You see, Germany had been researching rockets since the late 1920s and had launched a liquid fuel rocket in 1931. And unlike the US, Germany were early adopters of the military applications of rocket power, particularly long-range weapons. Our fourth founder of rocketry, Hermann Oberth, was born in what is now Romania. Along with a love of rockets, Oberth and Goddard have one more thing in common. Their peers thought their ideas of rocketry were absurd. However, Oberth persevered, publishing his doctoral dissertation privately when it was at first rejected. In 1928 and 1929, he worked as a scientific consultant on the film Frau im Mond, Woman in the Moon. This movie was a huge hit in Germany. I don't know whether it was quite as big a hit as David Hasselhoff, but it really lit a fire under rocket enthusiasm. But it was his successful test firing of a liquid-fueled rocket motor in 1929, assisted by a young student named Werner von Braun, that would propel him into history. Just over one decade later, the two would reunite while working on the German ballistic missile research program. By 1944, Germany was well ahead in front of other nations in rocket capability. The end of World War II left lots of German scientists from the aerospace and missile programs without jobs. A lot of these scientists had questionable histories. 
Some of them had been high up in the Nazi party, and several were later accused of war crimes. These moral objections were not so objectionable, it seems. Britain, the US and the USSR swooped in on German scientists like seagulls after hot chips. There's a great term for this large-scale raiding of knowledge resources, intellectual reparation. In addition to losing land, money and physical resources such as coal and steel, Germany lost knowledge and technology resources, patents, copyrights, trademarks and scientists. Aerospace engineers? Tick. Nuclear scientists? Tick. Cryptographers, rocket scientists, industrial chemists? Tick, tick, tick. You want them? Germany has them. At any rate, the Soviets desperately wanted German scientists, and the US and Britain desperately wanted those scientists anywhere but. Werner von Braun moved to the US, where he spearheaded the Redstone rocket program used for the first US nuclear ballistic missile tests. He wrote articles detailing space stations and manned Mars missions in the 50s, and even appeared on television. Von Braun capitalised on the explosion of public interest in space travel in the 1940s and 1950s, what we now call the Golden Age of Science Fiction. The Golden Age is my favourite period of science fiction. A quick look at the Hall of Fame for this period finds you authors like C.L. Moore, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein and Ray Bradbury, and later on Joanna Ross, Judith Merrill, Philip K. Dick and Arthur C. Clarke. There's a common theme through many of the science fiction works published in this era, a sense of starry-eyed wonder and the far-flung dreams of the social and technological advancements made possible by science. Even Tintin went to space. Space travel was hot. And then, in October 1957, interest in space skyrocketed overnight. Soviet scientists, led by Sergei Korolev, had been forging ahead with new rocket designs, aided by scientists the USSR had acquired from Germany. On Friday, 4th October 1957, the USSR launched the first artificial Earth satellite. This satellite, Sputnik 1, was a polished metal sphere a little bigger than a basketball, with radio antennas attached. It orbited for 22 days before it ran out of battery, and then spun around the Earth for another two months before gradually falling back into the atmosphere. USSR 1, US 0. The space race had begun. What we see next is about 12 years of attempts from both the US and the USSR to claim firsts. Some of them are pretty depressing. If you like animals, you might want to skip ahead about two minutes. Here's a quick roundup of the next 12 years, 1957 to 1969. In October 1957, USSR sent the first artificial orbital satellite, Sputnik 1, into space. They followed it up in November 1957 with the first animal to orbit the Earth, although, unfortunately, like the dog, died soon after. In December 1958, the US launched the world's first communication satellite and broadcast the first human voice from space. In January 1959, the USSR launched Luna 1, the first human-made object to leave the orbit of the Earth. Okay, so this one's a bit of an accident. They were aiming for the moon, but they missed. And instead, Luna 1 became the first man-made object to orbit the sun. September 1959, the USSR launched Luna 2, the first space probe to hit the moon. It literally hit the moon. There was no coming back from that. 
but in October 1959, Luna 3 went into orbit around the moon and photographed the dark side of the moon. And in August 1960, the USSR launched and returned two dogs, alive. Here is the one that really set the cat amongst the pigeons, though. Great success in space when the Russians pushed a man across the threshold. In April 1961, the USSR sent the first man into space. His name was Yuri Gagarin. So, there's not a lot of runs on the board for the US yet. And people like to argue about this a lot. Some people like to claim the US shot the first animals into space. These animals were fruit flies, launched into the air in a V-2 rocket in 1947, which never made it into orbit. The capsule ejected and parachuted back to Earth. The fruit flies survived. In 1949, the US launched a rhesus monkey named Albert II into space on another V-2. No prizes for guessing why he was called Albert II, although it might help you to know that Albert II's parachute failed during the return to Earth. Animal fatalities were generally high during the development of spaceflight technology. Another quibble is over whether Yuri Gagarin deserves the title of first successful spaceflight. According to a small number of dissenters, Gagarin's claim is invalid because the definition of successful spaceflight established by the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale, the body overseeing aeronautical and air astronautical activities, said a successful spaceflight was one where the astronaut landed inside the spacecraft. Now, Gagarin ejected and parachuted back to Earth. This attempt to delegitimize this landmark moment in science is hokey. Please tell anyone who tries this weak argument on you that the FAI reviewed Gagarin's flight and decided to move the goalposts so that under their definitions he would retain the record. To recap, so far it's not going well for the US. Even if we give them the fruit flies in space and a weather satellite they launched in 1959 that took the first photograph of the Earth from space, they're tracking at 7-3 down. But since fruit flies in space aren't really that exciting, and the weather satellite doesn't really help you get into space, I'm going to tally up 7-1 on the score sheet. Yuri Gagarin's spaceflight is what pushed then-US President John F. Kennedy to rethink his opposition to NASA and funnel more money into the US space program. From 1961 to 1964, NASA's budget more than quintupled. But the USR continued to rack up firsts. Here's another one. Down to Earth in a conventional way came the man and woman who'd been in orbit at the same time. And as the first ever space girl, Valentina Tereshkova, here with Colonel Bukovsky, has won a place in history. What a triumph for Russian science. No wonder the whole Soviet Union took her to its heart. In June 1963, Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman in space. In March 1965, the USSR claimed the first spacewalk by Alexei Leonov whose spacesuit inflated slightly in the vacuum of space, and he had to blow off some steam to get back into the spacecraft. On July 1965, the US sent Mariner 4 to Mars to take photographs. Hmm. Still not doing so great. 9-2 to the USSR at the moment. But 1966 and 1967 are not good years for either the US or the USSR. Efforts in the USSR are set back by the sudden death of Korolev, leader of the USSR space efforts. In the US, Apollo 1 catches fire on the launch pad, tragically killing the astronauts inside. And Soviet cosmonaut Vladimir Komarov is killed when his parachute fails to open on return from Soyuz 1. 
People are still dreaming about space travel, though. In May 1968, 2001, a space odyssey hit cinemas. And it is a smash. And we're getting close now. On December 1968, the US sent Apollo 8 with a human crew to orbit the moon and return to Earth. And July 1969 is the famous moon landing. The US sent Apollo 11 and landed on the moon. So here we are. The US have four to the USSR's nine. If we look ahead a couple of years, we can add two more to the USSR scorecard. The first space station and the first Mars landing in 1971 make it 11-4. Tensions between the two nations started to ease in the mid-70s, with the USSR and the US teaming up for the first international space mission in 1975, marking the end of the space race. But Helen, wait, I hear you saying. The US landed on the freaking moon. That's how the US won the space race. Bazinga! Yeah, the US landed on the moon first. But the space race isn't Quidditch, you know. You don't win by catching the snitch of the moon landing. The USSR, up until the untimely death of Korolev and the slow strangulation of funding in the USSR in the late 1960s, were out in front on almost every aspect, often with far inferior equipment. That's why I think the USSR won the space race. Before you go, there are some really important people missing from this story. Apart from Valentina Tereshkova, there are very few women in this story. Science has a bad history of footnoting the accomplishments of women. I don't have room in the margins of this podcast to do them justice. I'll be writing a whole blog post about the women behind the space race on my blog over at Science is Golden. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out the blog and come back next time to hear about Brave New World, Jurassic Park and Mendel's Peas.